You don't have to kind of do something grand, like go to a monastery to live a meaningful life or discover the cure for cancer. But if you can kind of give love to others in small ways, that those small acts of connection will light up your life with meaning. That was a little snippet from this podcast interview. I'm speaking today with Emily Esfahani-Smith. I sought her out to come and speak to us on the Here to Thrive podcast after reading her book earlier in the year. Seeing people create and live meaningful lives is one of my passions, and that's why her book stood out to me. It's called The Power of Meaning. And Emily really is an expert on what it takes for us to live meaningful lives. She's a graduate of the prestigious positive psychology program at the University of Pennsylvania and spent multiple years researching this topic. She's also a journalist and a speaker. Recently, she did a TED Talk on this very topic that we're talking about today, and it's called There is More to Life Than Being Happy. It was released a few months back and it's already had 1.8 million views. You really want to check that out after listening to our conversation here. We are covering a bunch of stuff in this episode. Specifically, we're going to talk about some of the unsettling trends that appear to be happening in Western society recently when it comes to the types of lives we're living. What is the difference between a meaningful and a happy life? Emily details the four pillars of meaning that she found when she was researching this book and how you can apply those to your own life. We really dive into one that I find fascinating called storytelling, and it's all about the stories we tell ourselves about our lives. Hugely important. It's a goodie, so stay tuned. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Emily, thank you so much for coming on Here to Thrive. It's an absolute honor to have you here. Thank you for having me, Kate. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, I found you because I read your book and I actually came across it. I live in America now, but I came across it here in the States. And then I was traveling to New Zealand to visit my mom and realized that I hadn't packed your book. And I was devastated because it was the one book I wanted to read while I was away. And then I got to the airport in Auckland, New Zealand, and there was your book sitting on the bookshelf. And so I picked myself up a second copy. So you're the one (laughs) book that I have bought twice this year. Well, thank you so much. That's very flattering. I love what you're talking about. And then I went back and watched your TED Talk and realized that I resonate with your personal story so much as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what life was like for you before you went to grad school and started studying positive psychology? Of course. So I 
I grew up in Montreal. I, I live in Washington, D.C. now, but I, I grew up in Canada in downtown Montreal. And I guess you could say that I had a childhood that was a little bit unusual. So I grew up living in a Sufi meeting house. And Sufism is a school of mysticism that's associated with the poet Rumi and the whirling dervishes. So living in the meeting house meant that twice a week, Sufis would come over to our house in the evenings and they would sit on the floor and meditate while Persian Sufi music played in the background. And the whole point of their practice was to grow closer to God. So meditation was one way that they did that. The, the, the point of it was to kind of break down the barriers of the self so that you can feel at one with this divine reality around you. Another way that they did that was by practicing loving kindness, which of course is a, a principle that's central to Buddhism and also the Judeo-Christian tradition as well. And then finally, service was a big part of what they did because the idea was that if you if you loved God with all your heart, then you also loved all of his creation. And so you wanted to kind of contribute to them and, and serve others. So I think, you know, for me, that growing up in that atmosphere left an, an impression because I was surrounded by people who were leading meaningful lives and who had clear answers to the question of, you know, what makes your life meaningful and what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is God. A life is meaningful when you're doing specific things that helps you grow closer to that higher reality. Did your parents include you in those kind of practices as a child? Were you meditating from a young age? My parents, they did. They definitely encouraged me. But I, I do also remember them saying to me, and it's something that, that stood out to me then and continues to stand out to me. They said to me, when you grow up, like, you know, you should feel free to explore whatever spiritual or religious systems that you want. So there was never any kind of pressure to be part of the Sufi program, but I was just so intrigued by it all. And it was, it wasn't very dogmatic at all. So there was very little to kind of rebel against, but I was just intrigued by the whole idea of meditating and being part of this kind of rich and exotic culture. People would be reading Rumi poetry, telling stories about Sufi saints and sages. So it kind of gave my imagination a lot to play with. And I was very much welcomed into, into the fold. Then you leave home, I assume. Where did that journey take you? Where did you go once you left that environment? Yes. So uh, when I was about, I don't know, maybe 13 years old, we moved out of the Sufi meeting house and we came to the United States. And that was wonderful in a lot of ways. I, I love living here in America. But I think without that daily grounding of Sufism in my life, I started to began really questioning, what is this about? What makes life meaningful? Am I leading a meaningful life? Can you lead a meaningful life outside of a religious or spiritual system? And that those questions led me to studying philosophy when I was both in high school and then in college, and then eventually to studying positive psychology in graduate school. And positive psychology is this field that kind of asks and answers the question of what is the good life? How can we lead a good life? What is a meaningful life? What is happiness? Using both philosophy and also the tools of empirical social science research. 
Before you ended up in grad school studying positive psychology, did you ever feel a little bit ungrounded? Did you ever feel that sense of perhaps starting to lack meaning or did you always feel tethered to something? I definitely did have moments where I, I felt ungrounded. And I think that that kind of, you know, I think it's, it's natural for those feelings to kind of emerge in adolescence and then in, in your you know early adulthood. And I think that happened to me. And it also happened to coincide with the fact that we had left the Susie Meeting House. So those clear answers to, you know, what makes life meaningful were no longer part of my daily life. And in the absence of them, there were all these things that started to fill the void, basically. So in, in our culture, we're, we kind of constantly are told that if we pursue happiness, then that's what a good life is. Or if we pursue success, then that's what a good life is. Or if we're rich and become wealthy, that's what a good life is. And so I kind of was absorbing those messages and pursuing things like success and happiness, but realizing ultimately that they, they weren't actually that fulfilling and that what was fulfilling was just doing things that were meaningful. That is the part that I think I just so understand from a personal level. I have been the girl that chased success and then happiness and absolutely the financial goals and was still left feeling, eh. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think it's something, it's a common experience for a lot of people, I think. In your TED Talk, you mentioned that there is an emptiness that's gnawing away at people. Can we talk more about that? What is going on in Western society? You know, it's really interesting because if you look at developed countries, many of them Western countries, what you see is that life is getting better by nearly every conceivable objective measure. So less people live in poverty, less people are dying of starvation and deadly diseases, quality of life is improving, there's more wealth in the world. And, and, you know, this is true not just of kind of Western developed cultures, but the world in general, the world is just kind of improving materially and it's a, a boon for billions of people. At the same time, What's been happening is that there's been this rise in despair, and you see this particularly in developed countries. So as things are getting better, people are actually feeling worse. You know, rates of depression have been rising for decades. Rates of anxiety and rates of loneliness have also been rising. Uh, The suicide rate has been rising in countries around the world. And in the U.S., it it recently reached a 30-year high. So there are all these kind of indicators that people are feeling hopeless and that they're living what Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist, called an existential vacuum. That is, they, they, their lives are materially better, but they feel like their lives are less meaningful. Yeah, and it makes so much sense. I've never heard someone be able to quite summarize it as well as you do. How do you define a meaningful life? And how is it different from a happy life? So when I talk about that research that I was just citing about the kind of rise in despair, what's really interesting about it is that when social scientists kind of crunch the numbers to figure out what's really driving people to suicide, to depression, and then things like that, they, they find that it's, it's not a lack of happiness. It's actually a lack of meaning. So that tells us that happiness and meaning are two different things. And I think that 
a lot of the time when we see that, oh, people are feeling despair, they're unhappy, they're feeling depressed, that the solution is happiness. But actually the solution, this research suggests, is meaning. So what is meaning? So meaning is basically about connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself. That's how philosophers, many philosophers define it. That's how many psychologists define it. And when people tell psychologists that their lives are meaningful in empirical research, it's because three conditions have been satisfied. First, uh, they believe that their lives are significant and worthwhile. Second, they believe that their lives are driven by a sense of purpose, so some goal or goals that they value. And finally, they believe that their lives are coherent, which means that they don't think of their experiences as random and disconnected, but they conceive of them as part of a coherent whole, a narrative that helps them understand who they are and why the world is the way it is. So in other words, things make sense. They're not senseless. Uh, and happiness, by contrast, it's, uh, I'll step back and say the idea of happiness has changed over time, over the thousands of years of history. Back during the time of Aristotle, happiness was understood to be an active thing that you did. It was the act of, of leading a flourishing life, of kind of realizing your potential. And it, was, it wasn't something that everybody could accomplish the way that we think it is today. The root of the word happiness, hap, um, actually means luck. So the idea was that there was some kind of fadedness to whether you were happy and only a select few could be happy. But over time, uh, the definition of happiness and our conception of it has changed so that now happiness is thought of as primarily this kind of positive mental and emotional state. So that yellow smiley face that you see attached to a bunch, you know, articles about happiness. And we think that we should pursue happiness and everyone can be happy. So all of a sudden there's this expectation that we should be happy all the time and that if we're not, there's something wrong with us. What I'm hearing is that happiness is more fleeting and it's more of an experience, whereas meaning is something much deeper. Exactly. So, you know, happiness is great. And I think we all enjoy being happy. I haven't met anyone that I know of <laughs> who doesn't like being happy. But I think that to kind of build our lives around it is a mistake because it is fleeting, as you say. It's an emotion that comes and goes. You know, we're happy one minute, we're not the next. But meaning is this, it's something that's more stable. It's not always stable. You know, there'll be periods in your life feels more or less meaningful, but it's more stable than happiness, which is an emotion. Mm, totally makes sense to me. So having read your book, I want to call you wise. I really do feel like your book, The Power of Meaning, is really a book of timeless wisdom. And it was one of the reasons I think I was so moved by it. Upon reflection, what were some of the life lessons that you perhaps knew already with having had the childhood you had? And I think you probably touched on some of them earlier, that having gone on and researched this, you now realize that you kind of always knew you may have just not labeled them in the same way. Uh, that, that's an interesting question. And, and thank, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. I, I You know, it's funny. I do think that so much of what... I learn as a journalist is really me relearning or deepening an, an insight that I had learned in a younger age and just kind of discovering it anew in a lot of ways. Or, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of 
ring true to you until you actually learn it for yourself. And I think that that is what happened with a lot of what I learned writing this book. I think the the first thing was that, you know, when I grew up in the CP meeting house, I was surrounded by people who weren't necessarily leading happy lives. So many of them were refugees from the Middle East. They had led difficult lives and yet their lives were meaningful and they found comfort in devoting themselves to a demanding spiritual pursuit, to their work, which wasn't always easy to do, to their families, which required them to sacrifice. And as I wrote my book, what I realized basically was that Right. There's not, you don't have to feel happy all the time in order for your life to count as a good life, even though we get this message in our culture that you should be happy all the time. So one is the fact that, you know, like negative emotions and negative experiences play a role in a meaningful life. And it's okay if you have those and you feel those. And the second thing is really about the power of love, connection, giving, being attuned to others. I think those are all different ways of saying the same thing. I once asked Sufi Master, you know, what is Sufism really about? And he said, it's about love. And that principle, that's true also of so many spiritual and religious systems, so many philosophical systems as well. And that's what I found researching this book too, interviewing people who were and weren't religious and looking at what the research said about meaning that you don't have to kind of do something grand, like go to a monastery to lead a meaningful life or discover the cure for cancer. But if you can kind of give love to others in small ways, that those small acts of connection will light up your life with meaning. I think that is such an important point that you don't have to do big grand things to live a meaningful life. Don't, don't so many of us need that message? Yeah, no, I think, I think that there's this misconception that you know, you have to find your capital M meaning, your capital P purpose um, in order to have, you know, this significant life, that your life has to be epic in some way. But the truth is, you know, most of us are going to lead ordinary lives and there's still meaning to be found within that. Mm, that's so good. I want to talk about your researching before we jump into what you found and what your book is specifically focused on. I want to hear more about your process. I really wanted to talk to people who either felt like their lives were meaningful or who had at various points struggled to find meaning in their lives and learn from them to see what their stories revealed about what each of us can do about how to live more meaningful lives. So I, I talked to artists, I talked to a former drug dealer, I talked to a woman who was dying of cancer and tried to kind of see if there was anything that came up, any patterns that emerged. And at the same time, I was looking through psychology research as well about these issues. And what I found as I kind of went through all of this research is that these four themes kind of emerged again and again in the stories people told me and in the research about what makes life meaningful. And they are, one, a sense of belonging, two, purpose, three, storytelling, and four, transcendence. That's what I loved about your book is I feel like you really 
took a topic that could be so complex and overwhelming. And I'm sure when you started on your journey to understand it, it probably felt like that. But to give these four pillars really grounds it and makes it so usable for all of the rest of us and our lives. Was that your hope? You know, it it definitely was because I know ever since I I was young, probably because of my upbringing, I really cared a lot about this question of meaning. And yet meaning seemed like such a vague word. You know, what does it mean? And then on top of that, like, what do we have to have in our lives for that to count as meaningful? And so I wanted to really break it down um, and approach it analytically to figure out the answer to that question and to you know, hopefully offer it to others as something that would be helpful to them. So can we touch on each of those and would you be able to give us a little bit of an insight into what each of those four pillars kind of means? So if we started with belonging, what does belonging mean when we're talking about a meaningful life? Of course. So belonging is really about being in relationships or a part of groups where you feel valued for who you are intrinsically. And I say that because so many of the groups that we're in, so many of the relationships that we're part of, um, give us a false sense of belonging. So we're valued not for who we are, but for what we believe, who we hate, what we're willing to do. You know, think of gangs and cults or even some religious groups that, um, you know, where, where it's, it's a similar thing. So true belonging really, I would say, springs from love, this kind of open-hearted um, generosity of spirit that you bring to another person and that another person brings to you. And it exists in moments. There are things that we can do to cultivate belonging with others. Mm. And then purpose. You talked about purpose with a big capital P. Can we talk about what purpose is in terms of a sense of meaning? Yes. So purpose is, it's really about having something worthwhile to do with your time. Um, Psychologists define it as having some sort of goal or, or several goals that involve making a contribution to the world. And it does come in all shapes and sizes. So there will be some people who find purpose in doing those big things like, you know, working on a cure for cancer or starting a company like Facebook. But for most people, purpose comes from kind of more the tasks of day-to-day life, you know, things like raising your children, doing work that you're proud of and that you feel makes a difference either in a small way or a big way for others. I I talked to a hospital cleaner from Michigan who spends the majority of her time doing janitorial work, but she told me that she thinks of her purpose as helping sick people heal. So it's interesting because, you know, purpose on the one hand is is something that we kind of, we can define for ourselves and we can also reframe the, the things that we do to make them more purposeful. So for her, a job wasn't just a job, it had this higher calling. Mm. Now can we jump ahead and just touch on transcendence? What is transcendence when it comes to meaning? Transcendence is, it's those rare moments where you feel connected to something much bigger than yourself. And at the same time, 
feel your sense of self dissolve. So, um, you know, I think for a lot of people, transcendent experiences happen in a religious context. Maybe you're meditating or praying. Maybe you're taking part in a mass and the music is so beautiful. The incense, the whole pageantry of it kind of helps you step outside of yourself. But you could also experience transcendence in secular contexts as well. Nature is a really powerful source of transcendence for so many people. You know, you're out there, you're, you're looking at a beautiful vista or the ocean, and it just fills you with awe and kind of makes you feel tiny compared to how large the universe is. And the interesting thing about these experiences is because they, you know, we're, we're, we're so focused on being the center of our own world so much of the time, but these experiences make us realize that we're so tiny and that causes a shift in perspective where we see, okay, my, all these things I'm worried about, all of my problems are not so important. And what's important is the fact that I am just part of this universe, a small piece of it, but a piece of it nonetheless. Yeah, I'm. Is transcendence could that also be related to flow? That I feel like. Mm. Did you mention in your TED talk about how you find a transcendent joy in writing? Yes. No. That's such a good point, and I think I think it is. So you know, another way to think about transcendence, similar to what I said before, is is losing your sense of self because you're just so absorbed in what you're doing. And I think for a lot of people that can happen through the work that they do. So I, you know, I've been working on an article the last few days where I've just been so into the writing and into the research that the morning hours just fly by. And before I know it, it's lunchtime. And so I'm kind of in this state of flow and it's, it's this really kind of invigorating, uh, transcendent experience. Yeah. I've been there and I, I completely understand that one. I want to talk more about storytelling because I find this one of the most interesting of your pillars and I've heard you on other people's podcasts and I think the way you talk about this is so incredibly powerful. So can you tell us about how storytelling has a part to play in the meaning of our lives? So storytelling, when I talk about storytelling, what I'm really talking about is the story that you tell yourself about yourself, about how you became the person that you are today. And what's interesting is that as I go around and I talk to people about my book, The Power of Meaning, and, um, and talk to them about this particular pillar, they, it's often one of the ones that surprises them and intrigues them. And I think it's because we don't always realize that we are telling a story about our lives and that we have the power to kind of tell a story and to edit our story and to change it. We, we think that, oh, things are just the way they are. First this happened and that happened and all of a sudden here I am, I'm the person I am today. But actually this, we're telling a story and we're making editorial choices about what events to incorporate in that story and which ones to leave out. And two more points about that. One is that the act of storytelling is kind of an act of meaning making because you're taking all these disparate pieces of, of information, you know, the events of your life, where you were born, what your parents were like, and you're putting them together. So that's kind of, you know, that goes back to coherence, which is what I talked about earlier. But then there's this second piece of it, which is that some of the stories that we tell are more meaningful than others. So there are different ways to tell the stories of our lives. And you know, some of them are more helpful and some of them are more harmful. 
Absolutely. I think about people I know and some of the stories they tell themselves about their childhood. And I've talked Mm. to some of their siblings and they've said, our childhood wasn't like that, you know, and it's just a completely different story being told. And it's not that the person's necessarily wrong, but that that has affected the meaning that they take from their experiences. Mm, That's so interesting. And so right, because, you know, if you think about, you know, if if we were sitting at a table and there was a cup of coffee um, sitting between us, you have one perspective on it and I have another perspective. And it's the same with the events of our lives. You know, we, we interpret them differently. And, um, and what I find is that so many people kind of adopt a a negative interpretation of, of their experiences of their childhood, of, you know, how their parents raised them, of what happened at work, of who they are. And I think it's because, you know, human beings, it's, it's psychological fact that we have this very strong negativity bias so that negative events affect us more powerfully than positive ones that we're much more likely to remember the negative and to discount the positive. Um, it's so much so that, I think in relationship research, they, they find that you need to have five positive events for every one negative event in order to have a good relationship because the negative one can so contaminate um, everything else. Well, if you think about it in the context of your story, that means that, you know, if you had a few negative events that can really contaminate the story that you tell. So I think, and indeed, one of the types of stories that people tell that make them feel that their lives are less meaningful are what are known as contamination stories. So stories that move from something good happening to something bad happening. So for example, I was, you know, really happy as a child, but then my parents got divorced and everything was ruined. As opposed to a redemptive story, which is associated with living a more meaningful life. And that's a story that moves from bad things happening to good things happening. So take the same series of events that I just said. My, I had a good childhood. My parents got divorced, and that was really hard. But then from the lessons that they learned in their relationship and in their divorce, I ultimately ended up having more successful relationships later in life. So, you know, it's about where you choose to end your story, what information you choose to incorporate into it. And because we have this negativity bias, we're probably telling stories that are more negative than what reality says actually happened because we're so focused on the negative. That 100% makes sense to me. And also the idea that we have the power to go back and retell our stories or edit them and make sure that we are being realistic and the way we are telling ourselves things happened or affected us. I think automatically about uh, Steve Jobs's quote, which is one of my all-time favorites, and I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but that when we can look back on our lives and see that the dots connect that's when we feel our most powerful. That's where we find our fulfillment and that the dots will connect, but that we have to have faith that they do. That is, you know, the, the, the idea of dots connecting is such a beautiful metaphor for this. So when we've got those four pillars, does a meaningful life mean that people have to be balanced across all four or do some people weigh more heavily on one or other to create their meaningful lives? So I definitely, you know, it's definitely the case that if you, it's probably good to have, you know, more than one pillar or all four pillars in your life, because if 
if one of them suddenly goes away, um, then you can kind of lean on the others. That said, it's, it's also the case that people lean on different pillars for meaning more than others. And I actually, I created this quiz on my website to help people figure out what their particular pillar of meaning is. So, um, you know, maybe you're somebody for whom belonging is really important because you, you really care about your relationships, but I'm somebody for whom transcendence is important because meditation is a big part of my life. So it, it can definitely vary. And the other thing is that, it, you know, our sources of meaning can change as our lives change. So this goes back to what we were talking about before about the myth of having to find one capital M meaning or one capital P purpose. It's actually not the case that most people are just going to have one, you know, at one stage of life, you might find more meaning in your work. Another stage of life might be more about your family. So it's, it's this really dynamic and fluid process. The hard work of meaning. So you touched on earlier that you can have a meaningful life that isn't always a happy or superficially happy life. Is creating a meaningful life not always easy? That's true, yes. So, and I think that this is why it maybe it's not as, excuse me, it doesn't receive as much attention as happiness. There's no quick fix solution to finding meaning in your life. It's really, it can be hard work. You have to figure out what you're good at, what your strengths are, and how you contribute those to others. Um, you, as you're, you know, living out your meaning or doing things that make your life meaningful from raising your children to doing that work that you're proud of, you are probably going to feel stressed out, even burned out from time to time because you're devoted to this work. So I think it definitely, it can definitely be hard. And, um, and that's no reason though to shy away from it because there's this reward that comes with it at the end of the day, which is this deep sense of satisfaction and well-being and peace. Um, you know, people, when they are laying on their deathbeds, they don't necessarily regret, oh, I didn't feel happier moment to moment, but they do regret my life wasn't as meaningful as it could have been. Mm. Oh, well, on that note, I want to switch it up a little bit and ask you a bunch of questions that I ask all guests, which just help us to get to know you a bit more personally. Are you ready for them, Emily? Yes, I am. Okay. Are you a morning person or a night person? Definitely a morning person. Is that when you do your best writing? Definitely. Yes. Between basically when I wake up until about one to three is when I'm at my most alert. And then after that, it's kind of a down, downward slide <laughs> to bedtime. It is, it is. I, I, I try to do things that, um, that don't require so much brain power during the afternoon, um, like, you know, working out or um, reading. If I have to do some research for a piece, that, that, that is a little more relaxing than writing or than editing. That totally makes sense. So what is currently sitting on your nightstand? Can you remember? What is currently sitting on my nightstand? I am reading a book by Eric Fromm called The Art of Loving. And I also have a book about World War II that I haven't started yet, but I'm looking forward to reading, which is called Everyone Brave is Forgiven. Oh, and how far through The Art of Loving are you? Have you learned anything about The Art of Loving? I have. It's, it's a great book. It's pretty slim. I think it's maybe about 120 pages and I'm about 50 pages through it. And each page is just packed with um, so many insights. And the, as I was reading it at lunch today, and one of the points that he makes that I 
really have been thinking about ever you know in the hours since is the idea that the word identity and identical and identify all have all come from the same root so i think that when we think of identity we usually think of the thing that makes us uniquely us but then if you think about words like identify and identical it's more about what unites us to others and so it makes me wonder if we need to kind of rethink our concept of identity in a way that's more um, more other focused and self focused oh which would go along with your meaning research just perfectly yes yeah, so. that's right what is your favorite self-care activity? How do you take care of yourself? Mm, I, I do like to go on runs. Um, that, that's helpful in terms of just kind of clearing my mind and getting rid of stress. I also like going on walks and I love reading. Do you have a favorite book? If you're a reader, is there something that stands out to you in all these years of reading? Gosh, there are so many. <laughs> that's a cruel question, right? Um, let me let me just think about the books that I've read in the last year. Maybe that would help. One of one um, of the other ways to think about it is what are the books you've read that you would recommend to others? Oh, that I'd recommend. Okay, so I think that uh, the the novel Middlemarch by George Eliot is a really beautiful work about finding meaning in life and what the meaning of life is. It's it's just it's very humane and compassionate, and it's about a group of young people, some of whom think they have to do something extraordinary and epic to lead a meaningful life. But then as the novel goes on, things don't always work out. Their dreams and hopes get dashed. And it's about how they figure out how to live a meaningful life in spite of those disappointments. And it's just really beautiful. Oh, I feel like that's been a little bit of theme of this conversation, that the ordinary life can still be so meaningful. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite kind of long route that you took or a life lesson that perhaps took you a pretty long time to learn? I think the one that I am, I feel like I've been learning over the last year and especially over the last few months is the importance of slowing down. I think when you're, you know, ever since I was young, I've always kind of been ambitious and driven and and I, and I was always good at doing things quickly and efficiently. But now I'm realizing that even though that made me productive and maybe more, maybe more productive than, you know, the average person, it came at the expense um, oftentimes of thoughtfulness and creativity. So now that I am slowing down and taking time to really think about my projects, the next things I want to write, I'm finding that um, the, the ideas are a little bit more fully formed and, and developed. And I think that that is something that I would recommend to others is not be afraid to slow down and to kind of step off the, the treadmill, even when everyone is encouraging you to hurry up. That is a beautiful lesson. What is one thing in your day that you can't do without? Probably chocolate. Oh, I can do it some <laughs> right now. I haven't had chocolate for a little while, actually. Now you got me hungry. Do you believe in a soul? And if so, how would you describe it? I do think that there is something there that's not that's not just material in the way that we right now understand 
the mind as kind of a material thing. I mean, you know, I was talking to a neurosurgeon the other day and he says, you know, you can poke and prod different parts of the brain. You can remove different parts of it. And most of the time the person is still there. And I, I'm really, I'm attracted to the, um, the Hindu idea of this kind of divine essence that lives in everyone. And it, it, it's an idea that exists in other spiritual and religious systems as well. You know, in Christianity, they would call it a soul. It's like the, the divine essence that lives within you. And I just, I think there's something about it that makes sense, even if it's not in the way that, you know, most people understand it. Maybe it's not some kind of spirit, but there's something I think that unites all of us and that, creates in us a yearning for transcendence. Mm, I like that. It creates in us a yearning for transcendence. Oh, I also have studied psychology. I was a psychologist in New Zealand. And I have to admit, one of the things that I found hard about psychology is coming, being a very kind of philosophical kid, just naturally, I felt like I was taught in a very behaviorist kind of tradition and it took the soul out of out of the human experience for me. So I've been trying to put it back in ever since, hence the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's – no, that's so – I was just talking to a man, if you might know his work, um, called Jay Lombard about this. We spoke on a panel together, and he is a neurologist and psychiatrist in New York City. Um, he has a book that's called The Mind of God, and he – absolutely believes in the soul, uses that term unapologetically, which I think is really interesting because he does have this neurological psychiatric background. So I recommend his book if you are thinking in those directions. Oh, I need to read that. Thank you, Emily. All right. I have one final question for you. Okay. When, when people come to you saying that they want a more meaningful life, if they ever do, what would be the piece of advice that you would give them? Where would you tell them to start? I would tell them to start by stepping outside of themselves. So focusing less on, you know, why my life is so meaningless, why I, my, I don't like my job and focusing more on how they are contributing to others and how they can further contribute to others. Um, you know, I think that in my own moments when I've been doubtful or felt hopeless or just didn't, it didn't feel like my life was full of meaning or was questioning what meaning my life had, um, that what really brought me out of it was realizing that I had a role to play within my family, within my community, and that I was doing good within those roles, even though I wasn't necessarily feeling like my career at the time was super meaningful or didn't know what my purpose was, things like that. Oh, that's so interesting. So look for how you are connected with other people and how you are contributing. Exactly. So cool. I hope you found that interesting. Emily and her description of storytelling, I think is so incredibly powerful, as are all of her pillars of meaning. She mentioned that if you go over to her website, you can do that little quiz. It took me literally like maybe a minute to work out what your main pillar of meaning is. She doesn't require any emails or anything. It's literally just log on and have a go. Interestingly enough, hardly a surprise, but my main pillar came out as purpose. 
Now, Emily's book, as I mentioned earlier, is called The Power of Meaning. You'll find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Hey, I even found it in Whitcalls in New Zealand. So check out your local bookstore or your favorite online retailer. The name of her super popular TED Talk that is taking off is called There is More to Life Than Being Happy. I'll link to both of those in the show notes, as well as her website, emilyesfahanismith.com. If you want to know more about her and her speaking, you can find it out there. I hope this was another episode that got you thinking about life a little bit more deeply. If you enjoyed it, it really would mean the world to me if you could tell one of your friends. And if this was your first time listening, hit subscribe so you don't miss out on future inspirational episodes. I'll be back again next week as I am every Friday with another episode full of tips and tricks to help you live a life that feels really good to you. Till then, keep thriving.